Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Good morning. It is Sunday morning and you are with uh, Triple R Radiotherapy. Good morning, good morning everyone. You're in the studio with Cyber Suze and Miss Perry Nam, and we have some very special guests coming on with us today for the final radiotherapy of the year. Seems like it's been a very interesting year. 2023 has been wild in many respects. So welcome, welcome to our last show. I know. It's very exciting. And we'll be back in the new year. Don't worry. Radiotherapy is not going anywhere. But we're excited to bring the last one to you for the year. And we have also two very excellent golden oldie favourites coming into the studio via Zooms. Um, We've got some foreign correspondents. Some foreign correspondents (laughs) coming in. So they are on standby with their flak jackets and all good to go. And um, it's Dr Spock and Doolittle. Good morning. Good morning. Spock here. Nice to be with you. Absolutely. And good morning, everyone. Doolittle here. No, what's this old? <laughs> I know, it's rude, isn't it? Gentlemen, I get called old all the time. I'm not at all happy. <laughs> I'm cranky like I'm cranky like all old retired men, but I'm not happy. Uh, isn't that the word kombudgery or something like that? Kamudgery. That's the one? Kamudger. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm a kamudgeon. That's what I am now. I'm, I'm a kamudgeon. Yeah, I wish about everything. This coffee's not hot enough. This coat's not cold enough. Too funny. Well, we can we you can have a good old bleat in a minute when it's your when you can do our little news items. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we've got some fabulous guests in the studio. So I think we should jump straight into it because we've got lots of things to chat about. So should we head to the news? Yes. Let's do it. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. So I've got some very interesting news out of the Baker IDI who have published a really interesting article in Nature Communications about a metabolic BMI. We've all known for a really long time that BMI measures are basically bogus in terms of understanding how we relate to obesity and our body weight. So our body mass index for anyone playing along at home is what the BMI stands for. And we know that it's a very baseline measure. Unfortunately, it gets used a lot in standardized clinical trials. If you look at control groups, often it's something that gets reported and there's quite a lot of discrepancy. BMI initially was developed for men only, so it doesn't adjust for women having a higher body fat percentage than men. And so for a really long time, it's been this overused simplified tool for people that doesn't actually relate to their measure of health, but it gets used really frequently. And so the guys at the Baker have done some research into looking at a metabolic BMI, which is a new tool. It's quite easily calculated based off um, a blood test. And what they were looking at is that it creates a more comprehensive picture of how the body metabolizes food and the way we eat and how that is then used to burn energy or store and the impact on our general health and well-being. So just like if you calculated your BMI and say, for example, I'm going to use myself as an example. I am a 30-something-year-old woman. I'm quite tall. I'm 5'11", 
but I also have incredibly high bone density because I did a sport which required vertical jumping for over 20 years. And so my BMI is actually in the overweight category, even though my fat and body fat percentage doesn't fit into that. So what their biological um, BMI looks at is actually how your body stores and processes food and whether you fall into that category or if you don't. So the, the common sort of vernacular that's coming around is that we see people who have a bigger body type but are actually incredibly well and healthy and fit. And so it, it's able to predict and look at those who are healthy but bigger bodied versus those who are not as healthy but slim. And I think it's really interesting that we see people that are starting to redevelop these basic reporting tools with a more broad understanding of the implications for health. And so um, relevant for people who are kind of becoming fitter, like obviously your rugby players and your super fit people, they exactly. know that not to worry about it because it's correct. And, it's, and but... it's, it's this really basic measure, but unfortunately it gets really overused and so it's it's sort of understanding this simplified tool in a better way so that it can be more useful to understanding people's health it's always a work in progress isn't it isn't it but it's nice to see that we can improve on the basics yeah yeah thank you you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Baker IDI. We love it. <laughs> Very good. And Dr. Spock, Dr. Doolittle, what have you got for us? Who's going first? Me? You go. Yeah. Who's going first? Yeah. Because yeah. I've been away. People you, exactly. Uh, you've been... No, I, I semi-retired and moved to Bali, so I, I live the good life in Bali these days. Um, and, That's why uh, you're looking so strikingly well and tanned and fit and happy and unstressed. <laughs> well, this is no work. We're on Zoom, and when um, Spock and I go on Zoom, we use one of those filters that make us look 20 years younger. And, We've and got the palm trees special, blowing in the background. Yeah, and it's a special BMI filter. It removes, <laughs> exactly. it removes three points on the BMI scale. So I'm actually the correct weight when I'm using this filter. You but anyway, totally that's and, not, not, and not a skerrick of grey hair either for either of you. Yeah, oh, that's, that's hair dye. Um, and tablets <laughs> to make your hair grow. Um, so uh, I was going to briefly just talk about, you know, living the semi-retirement locum life because I know a lot of people in the health industry, nurses, doctors, social workers, everyone these days does locums. And I'm on the locum trail where I get probably 30 emails a week of different locums around the country. What actually does a locum mean? Tell us what a locum means. Oh, good point. Hmm. Yeah, so a locum is a short-term contract. It used to be in the good old days, used to go and fill in for someone who was going on holidays. Um, but these days, most health services are understaffed, and so you're mainly going to fill into understaffed services who have maybe got a clinic that, you know, has got no doctor or, you know, short on nurses for a couple of weeks. And so you jump in anything from one week to about, well, you can do them for as long as you like. I know some people who do full-time locums, and you get basically casual pay rates. So you get everything rolled into one. You don't get, you know, you don't get sick leave, you don't get soup, you don't get, you just get a flat rate, and it tends to be a little bit, higher than normal public rates, but not dramatically higher when you actually do the careful mathematics of, you know, taking into account, you know, annual leave, sick leave and all that sort of business. So it sounds um, kind of well paid, but it sounds stressful. Well, that is the, that, look, it's mostly just fantastic. You get, you know, so you, I, I pick places that have amazing holiday destinations. <laughs> like I've been to Cairns about five times, Darwin three or four times. <laughs> I go to Broken Hill. I think I've been to Broken Hill three times. And for the next month, I'm in Rosebud down on the Mornington Peninsula. Wow. So I sort of link them to holidays and, uh, and mostly it's fantastic because you get to work in different services, 
all sorts of different teams, mm. you know, acute, chronic, rehab, um, all sorts of stuff, the emergency department, the hospital, um, and different age groups. So I love it, but it can be a little bit stressful. Mm. Like my most recent locum was in Darwin, and I went to a clinic that had had some serious issues with staffing, and there was meant to be six doctors, and I was the only doctor. Um, and there was about five nurses, but nearly all of them were locums. And wow. so, you know, it can be hair-raising, but... Mm. Um, it's it, but the hair raising moments are way less than the um, fascinating moments of mm. practicing mm. different sorts of medicine in exactly. different populations. And so as, like, as a psychiatrist, yeah. dude, what are the differences that you see between, for example, Rosebud, Broken Hill, and Cairns? I mean, they're pretty different locations. Well, it's it, you know the, the general run of the mill stuff. This sort of bread and butter, the coughs and colds of psychiatry, like schizophrenia, depression, <laughs> drug and alcohol yep. abuse. Um, yep. They're the same everywhere. Uh, the only difference is the um, amount of services. Mm -hmm. Like in a lot of the places, there's hard. Like in Darwin at the moment, there's virtually it's the uh, the ancillary services for drug and alcohol are minimal. Mm -hmm. So you're doing a lot of it yourself. Whereas you come down to a Mel to Victoria, and the drug and alcohol services are very good. And so you've got all sorts of extras. Um, Broken Hill, it's all age groups. So I could get a ten year old girl in the emergency department in the morning and a seventy year old. Um, man uh, with dementia in the emergency department later that day, and so um, so those sort of things are different. So it's much, yeah, so it's not so much the presentations; it's more the services that you can access that is the big differences. Interesting. There you go. Any, well, hold on. Any cultural differences? Well, I do. I do a lot of you know, as you guys probably know, but others won't. I sort of tend to specialise in Indigenous mental health locums. They're my favourite, and I've been doing them for a few years now. So, like, I get to go to the remote communities. In fact, I talked about it previously on Triple R um, a couple of years ago, I think. But so I go to a lot of remote communities. That's why I go to Darwin too. Um, and so the you know the cultural aspects of working um, with especially in the isolated remote communities like in Cape York where you up there, um, it's just you, a nurse, and sometimes a junior doctor in a big four-wheel drive, driving for hours every day through beautiful countryside, stopping at the beach for lunch, then going to these amazing communities and meeting families in their home and trying to adapt to your treatments for, say, depression, to their cultural practices. And, and uh, you often have an Indigenous liaison officer with you as well who helps with all that stuff. But that side of it is just fascinating and, uh, and it's, it's, it's obviously just a, you know, a lot of fun especially when you're doing it like I am as a semi-retirement job where you're just doing it for a bit of fun and to, you know, make sure your bank balance doesn't run dry. Sounds a like a pretty rosy fun. picture, really. Yeah. Oh, I'd be, I'd be popping it, you know, for everyone. The nurses love it. The social workers love it. Everyone I meet in the locum lifestyle just raves about the great experiences that they've had. It's It'll nice do. to know that in the uh, medical space that there is that capacity to have work well, the elusive work-life balance, because it's not something that we really hear about in the junior doctor sphere. Um, so it's nice to know that it is an option, maybe as you get a bit more sort of senior in the profession. I think it's been something that Doolittle's always very much advocated for, and it's been one of your things, hasn't it, Doolittle, that, that work-life balance and making life work for you rather than the other way around. Mm. If oh, only yeah, medicine I went, agreed. I part-time 26 years ago and then... And obviously retired before I turned sixty. So uh, and now just yeah, and now just work essentially about. Uh, probably it adds up to two months a year now. There you go. Perfect. Yeah, something to be said for studying psychiatry in your younger days as well. Independently yours, Triple R, one hundred two point seven. And Spock, have you got some news for us? 
I'll look at it's from uh, so, through a different thing. So we should thing, but... we should just let people know that Spock is a paediatrician at the Children's Hospital, very um, experienced paediatrician, and has been on the show many times over the past few years. Hmm. Spock. Um, yeah, well, I was going to talk about actually an infect- I'm an infectious disease physician as well, and one yeah. of the things that we've well, I think um, doctors and nurses in public hospitals have been seeing a lot of for the last year really, but it hasn't gone away and it is causing them great distress and that's group A strep or strep A, people yeah. also call it. It's the germ that causes sore throats um, and skin infections and a range of things. But um, what we've been seeing a lot of since the late last year when it sort of emerged in the UK originally is a lot of invasive disease with really very, very sick children and adults and it's particularly young children and the elderly are affected presenting and um, coming to hospital and actually often seeing their GP or the hospital being turned away because it looks like a virus, mm. being turned away often a couple of times before returning and very, very unwell and, unfortunately, some people dying. So it's, uh, it is a quite a concern that there's a strain, a particular strain that seems to be causing it, which has come from the UK. Um, but I guess the main thing that I want to say is that it's, we need to be alert and not alarmed. You know, mm. um, a lot of people want to change the way we're treating strep infections in general. And, and there's we, one of the major messages is for your primary care people is if, if you see someone who's sick, you know, you really have to sort of take a careful history. There are some warning features which are very sore limbs and um, if, uh, generally, you know, fever, Sore limbs are one of the big things, some gastrointestinal upsets and diarrhoea. And if some people have those sort of things, of course, it sounds pretty innocuous. It might just be a virus, but to take it seriously to make sure that you arrange follow-up to see um, these people because um, as the, one of the big things that's come out of the, the, uh, the literature has been that people have presented at least once to, yeah. see, to healthcare before them becoming in very, very unwell and ending up in ICU. And I, I think one of the things that, I mean, Spock, I, we haven't met in person yet, but my partner is also, an, he's an advanced training infectious diseases. And one of the things that I have heard many times when he's taking uh, late night phone calls or referrals is, have you done a swab? So don't assume that you know what it is. And, and getting, you know, I might, it might take a bit more effort, but actually look at it and see what it is and, and really sort of delve into it if you've got somebody who's presented a couple of times and it's not going the way you thought it would. That's right. So the, one, of the, one of the unfortunate things, though, is that the swab may show that there's a virus because many of these cases have a virus at the same time. They have flu mm-hmm. or RSV, which is another virus that occurs commonly in kids, and they've got both. They've got that and yeah. they've got the, the strep germ. So it, it's a very complicated thing. But one of the main messages is yeah, to sort of be alert, think about, think about it as a possibility. You know, take very seriously someone who's presented more than once uh, with the same illness. Mm. Um, and, but one of the, the flip sides is that we should not be going around treating all sore throats with antibiotics because... Yeah. Um, you know, in the UK, they, they have taken that approach that, oh, well, you know, in case it's strep or even if we know it is strep, we should be just treating sore throats, which mm. we have not advocated now for some time. We only treat people who are in risk groups like Indigenous kids who can get heart problems after strep infection. Um, and what we've seen is that people, a lot of, most of the people who have the, the really bad disease don't have sore throats, actually. Mm. Um, so... 
there's no real link between the, the typical strep throat and the invasive disease. Well, thank you very much for your updates, gents. We appreciate the foreign correspondent and joining us for our last show of the year. It's great to have you on. It is. Oh, and congratulations on a great year, guys. Fantastic uh, yeah. fantastic shows all year. I've been listening in from Bali and enjoying it, so oh, well done. We love that. And for those listening out there, if you want to catch any of our, last, our previous shows, you can find them on the Triple R website. We have everything recorded uh, so you can play your favourite shows while we're taking a break over Christmas if you miss us just that little bit. Okay. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, thank you very much. Go back to retirement and um, go and enjoy your day, Doctors Spock and Doctors Doolittle. Um, and we'll catch well, you around. Guys. Yeah. Guys. Yeah. yeah, nice to see you. Yeah. And we'll be back in a few minutes with our first guest, Dr Sarah Catchlove. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We are back on air. Yes. We have a really interesting guest coming on today. We've got Dr. Sarah from Turning Point, who's come in to talk to us about some of the clinical trials that they're currently working on, which is really exciting. Suze, would you like to introduce of Dr. Course, Sarah? Of course. So Dr. Sarah Ketchlove is a research fellow in the Clinical and Social Research Team. So um, focusing on substance use and... Treatment innovation. Treatment innovation. Yes. Yeah, which sounds very, very complex and interesting and diverse. Yes, it yeah. is all of those things. Yeah. Tell us like first of all before we kind of get going what got you into this and what does a day look like when you're a, such a research fellow? Yeah. <laughs> um so I've studied um, psychology and psychophysiology for right. most of my life. So you're not like a, a researching in a lab type of thing. You're No, yeah. no, we're doing inhuman clinical mm. trials. So mm. um, essentially my my day-to-day um, roles would be more of project management and um, team management. Mm-hmm. So we have an amazing team at Turning Point, mm. um, comprised of research assistants, research nurses, trial physicians, so psychiatrists usually, um, and the senior, senior sort of research leadership teams. And we are running a range of different trials at the moment. So, yeah, we're just busy, busy recruiting people. And yeah. I think that's one of the things that we were just chatting about. People don't realise that you can actually go on to Turning Point and these are clinical trials that you can, if you've got a particular issue, you can actually be, sort of self-nominate and get into the, one of these clinical trials if you think it's appropriate for you. Lots of people think they have to have a doctor's referral to get into something like this. So you can send yourself there. But Tell us first, yeah. so what, is, like, what is Turning Point? So Turning Point is it's Australia's uh, leading research education and um, training facility for substance use and addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a great organisation. Um, we have a lot of different areas. So as you said, I'm in the clinical and social research group, but there's also training, workforce development. We also have a range of um, telephone and online services. Um, so, yeah, it's a... It's a great place. And is it, just to be clear, is it specifically substance addictions rather than other addictions? Uh, no, it's gambling addiction uh-huh. also, yeah, range of addictions, yes. Okay. So what are some of the clinical trials that you've got running at the moment? So um, I wanted to speak specifically about three different trials that we've mm. got running. So um, the first one I'll talk about is N-acetylcysteine, which is an antioxidant, and we're using that to um, investigate whether it can improve symptoms of alcohol use disorder. 
Um, it is N-acetylcysteine is um, commonly called NAC. It's an antioxidant that's used, been used for decades in clinical practice for um, paracetamol overdose mm-hmm. because it can um, sort of reverse liver toxicity yep. after paracetamol overdose. So meaning it's an excellent candidate for people with alcohol use disorder um, and potentially um, damaged liver. So this trial will be recruiting about 60 participants. As you said, people can self-nominate. Um, the, there's a few criteria that need to be met, obviously, mm-hmm. but it's essentially a daily medication. It's a randomised controlled trial, so there is a placebo arm as well. But it's daily medication with support from our, uh, our research team and also medical assessments throughout a 12-week daily treatment. And we're hoping that um, the N-acetylcysteine will be able to improve craving and withdrawal symptoms as well as sort of counteracting the damage that alcohol use can cause to the body as well. And with your clinical trials, do do participants get access to counselling or support services in terms of dealing with their addiction? So we do have um, counselling always available via Turning Point. This particular trial, um, we're looking more at the pharmacological yeah. effects um, but always if people are, um, are needing counselling then that's definitely something that we can offer and refer on to. Yes. And with the NAC because I'm never going to remember to say the whole thing, <laughs> yeah. is there a lot of cro- like pharmacological interactions with other drugs or things medications that people might be on? Um, there, there are not so much I mean it's an antioxidant so it's yeah. quite light on in terms of its interactions but we do ask um, people you know you can be on a stable dose of antidepressants for example but it does um, affect the trial outcomes if people are taking other um, multivitamin you know supplements things mm-hmm. like that so there are some interactions um, but it's not too extreme with that. And what kind of things do you see in terms of you mentioning the liver, particularly with alcohol substance abuse? What are some of the consequences of long-term alcohol use in that regard? And, and what are you hoping to reverse? Yeah, so um, alcohol, chronic alcohol use is obviously associated with um, fatty liver um, disease and a range of other like hepatotoxicity. So NAC being an antioxidant sort of can counteract that damage um, which has been shown in animal preclinical models and also in humans, um, hence the paracetamol overdose usage. And it's a pretty, I mean, it sounds, I mean, antioxidant, I mean, good old blueberries, you can get it anywhere, right? But it sounds like a relatively innocuous kind of drug that might have a really big impact on people's quality of life. Yes, that's true. And it's been um, fairly widely researched in a range of other disorders, Mm -hmm. particularly um, has shown some efficacy in psychiatric disorders such as um, OCD, bipolar, um, trichotillomania, which is an interesting one, you know, compulsive hair pulling. Oh, so yeah. it's it's been shown to have some um, good effects in those impulsivity kind mm-hmm. of um, characterised conditions. Seems appropriate for addiction then, doesn't it? Exactly, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. yes. There's some efficacy with gambling addiction, I think, I believe, cocaine addiction, cannabis use disorder. So it hasn't been um, looked at in a large-scale trial of alcohol use disorder. Though. That is so interesting because I think gambling in particular is one that comes to mind for me that can be so seems to be so difficult to treat in a way. Mm. Yes. Yeah, yes. and as you say, like that kind of compulsivity is... Uh, mm. uh, yeah, I think people really don't understand that there's also pharmacological management for addictive disorders, mm. that it's not just um, 
it, it has to be done in conjunction, but there are actually medications that can help with some of those symptoms versus just psychological mm. intervention um, and that there are sort of measures of support. So that's really interesting. Where do people go to find out information mm. if they might be uh, appropriate for this trial? Mm. So we have our Turning Point website, which is just turningpoint.org.au. Mm-hmm. Um, under the impact tab, you'll see all of our, tr- our trials that are running. We have a range of different trials. I just work on the pharmacological based um, interventions yep. but we do have neurocognitive trials um, yeah there's lots of things going on at turning point at any given time mm. um, we also have our um, trials email inbox which um, oh. is trials tp at easternhealth.org.au you can get in touch with our research team that way totally. do people have to be living in a certain area or does does the website? I guess the website probably will give kind of criteria for eligibility and so on. A little bit. I mean, we, this particular trial is it's over um, a treatment period is twelve weeks. So there's eight, seven in person visits in those eight weeks, um, where you get some medical management and um, a variety of different tests that are being taken in that time. Pick up and drop off medication, things like that. Um, so it's probably easier if people are in metropolitan Melbourne mm. for the sake of mm. those those visits. They're not very long. The beginning and end of the trial are a bit more um, onerous, but, the uh, yeah, it's just a bit easier if you're closer, but there is no actual restriction, no. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. Um, what other um, trials have you got coming up in the new year? So the next trial that we have starting will hopefully be um, starting screening participants in around January. Mm-hmm. Uh, this trial is um, called Empathy. It's MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for comorbid PTSD and alcohol use disorder. Mm. So this trial is really interesting. Um, it's a world-first um, to combine, obviously, MDMA-assisted mm. therapy is um, being researched a lot more these days, particularly mm. with the um, change of scheduling by the yep. TGA recently. Um, but we are the first team to be looking at uh, the substance use disorder and PTSD concurrently. Yep. The trial, it'll be starting in Jan. We're using a gold standard therapy, which is... Um, it's an integrated treatment for PTSD and substance use. We already run programs with this therapy at Turning Point. It's called COPE. Mm-hmm. Um, and the therapy is a, it's a prolonged exposure therapy um, paradigm yep. for, for, the, for PTSD and substance use um, being treated at the same time. Mm. And we're hoping that uh, if we can combine this with the MDMA-assisted um, side of things that it's going to improve the outcomes of that that therapy program. So, um, one in four Australians will be diagnosed with AUD in their lifetime, and there is um, estimates that between thirty and forty percent of those treat- seeking treatment are also experiencing some type of trauma. That's a, that's a great thing. We've had a we've actually had a listener um, who's texted us through asking about Turning Point and your. Um, uh, I guess I guess addressing that trauma that often comes with substance abuse. So mm, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, and you know it creates quite a vicious cycle. So mm. it's uh, it's not common that they're treated together, um, and a, yeah. So it's it's a really interesting trial. I think we're really excited about it. For those playing along at home, MDMA even though we've heard about it on the streets. I'm assuming it's a little bit different about how you manage it for a clinical trial. Yes, yeah, <laughs> quite different. We have um, a very uh, 
specifically decorated and dedicated (laughs) treatment room for our dosing days, um, which is more like a living room than a, a clinical consult room Mm -hmm. so uh it's it's a nice space with a recliner and during the dosing sessions which can last you know six to eight hours with uh two you know two therapist team um people are well invited to sit with eye shades and listen to music there's no um onus to speak to the therapists during those dosing days it's more just a bit um to go inward during those um those treatment um induced periods and yeah it's going to be it's going to be a really interesting trial we're really excited Mm. it's a lot of work the the preparation and um dosing and integration periods is sort of three days um per participant and i should premise this by saying that uh because it is assisted psychotherapy it's a a 12-week therapy program Mm. so participants are um, having quite a, a lengthy screening period before they start their cope therapy, then it'll be weekly cope sessions for about four weeks before a dosing day, mm. another four sessions of cope therapy, another dosing day. So there is a lot of um, involvement with the both the participants and the research team, psychiatrists um, working together. So Really interesting. Yeah. And then you were mentioning to me one about cannabinoids as well. Yes. So another trial we'll have starting in, we're hoping in March, is um, looking at cannabis use disorder and we'll be treating this with cannabidiol, which is otherwise known as CBD. Um, This trial's really going to be great because... um, yeah, there's not a lot of treatments. There's no pharmacological treatments for cannabis use disorder. It's very prevalent. Mm-hmm. And we do get a lot of treatment seekers at Turning Point who um, that is their, their drug of choice that mm-hmm. they're trying to, um, to you know, reduce. So um, we're hoping that it's going to be efficacious. Cannabidiol is, um, you know, it's quite a buzz at the moment. So, um, yeah, we're go looking at a range of different um, demographics, people with cannabis use disorder, but we're also aiming to recruit a 20% um, population of Indigenous Australians also. Okay. And what kind of numbers of recruitment are you aiming for both of those studies? So Empathy, we are where it's a multi-site trial. Uh, sorry, yeah, we're one of two sites. So the lead site is actually Uni- uh, University of Sydney. Um, they've just had their first dosing day last week, actually. Exciting. So um, that was really exciting for them. But it's going to be 120 people, uh, both sites, so 60 per site. And for the um, cannabis use disorder trial, that is a larger scale trial. So that's got seven sites between, um, I believe, Queensland. New South Wales and um, and Victoria. Yeah, so right. we're East looking Coast. to recruit mm, 72 mm. people across our two sites in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you have, like, uh, do you have any thoughts on changes in cannabis use with the proliferation of pharma, the cannabis pharmacies Farm. that we are just seeing everywhere? Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, when it's prescribed, it's obviously quite different to the illicit cannabis market. And uh, there's been a lot of research of, how um, people who are prescribed cannabis for a condition, whether they're um, using that in a different way to people who are self-medicating mm, with cannabis. Mm. Yes, I think there's there's definitely differences. It's, it's quite an um, interesting change mm, because mm. the, yeah, the 
concentrations are going to be different between someone who's buying illicit cannabis versus um, being prescribed, a, mm. say, an oil. Or it's an interesting one, though. I mean, I, I live in St Kilda. We've got, um, you know, it's become the kind of quite the thing down on Ackland Street, and. Um, I wonder about how how diligent the, the the need to prove the medical need is in order to be able to access the prescribed cannabis, yes. and whether that's going to change or increase usage. Um, yes, yeah. I mean, I believe they still have to be authorised to prescribe, mm. um, but there. I don't know what the authorisation procedure is these days. Whether it's um, easier for doctors to prescribe, or there are no approved conditions for um, prescribing cannabis. So. If a doctor feels that it will be more beneficial than another treatment, then they are well within their right to prescribe it to a participant, but to a patient, sorry. Um, but I believe there's there's quite a price difference as well, depending on THC-based, CBD-based or other cannabinoids in the medication. And I'm not sure about the the likelihood that people are prescribed it as a, a flower to, you know, to smoke that would be, you know similar to what's um, being used illicitly. But uh, I do know that the the CBD-based oils are quite – they can be quite expensive. So mm. I think there's a difference there. It's a much more potent sort of mm. form of, mm. of things. So, and it's right. much more controlled. I think that's the thing that people don't realise is when um, you're smoking uh, weed, it, it's the plants have a variability in terms of the amount of effective substance in them. So with the oil, because you're actually able to refine it and test for the efficacy of what's in there, it's much more specific in terms of dosing versus smoking. So yeah. that's really interesting. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, no, no. Um, so should we head to a song, which is in a minute? Yes, yeah, so we will. So thank you very much for being on the show with us. Thank you for having Hopefully me. Hopefully that wasn't too scary. <laughs> <laughs> Please stick around because our next guest, um, there's lots of crossover in, uh, in relevance, so um, it would be great to have your input into our next guest as well. Yeah, so thank you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We are back on radiotherapy. It is 10.41 on this beautiful Sunday morning in Melbourne. Um, we've got some studio announcements that we're going to play in a minute. But first, I'd like to introduce our next guest. We have our lovely Alison Shockman, who is the Senior Clinical Neuropsychologist and the Clinical Director of Capacity Plus Neuropsychology down in Warrnambool. She's also previously known by Western District Neuropsychology, and she's one of the only services, I believe, in the Western Districts that provide neuropsychology services. And I want to ask first off, what is neuropsychology? Hello, Phoebe. Firstly, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and it's been great listening to the show so far on the fabulous Dr. Sarah from Turning Point. Um, what is neuropsychology? Yes, that is definitely something that gets asked a lot. Yes. Most people have heard of, um, I guess what most people think of when they hear psychology is a little bit more of counselling and clinical psychology, which is a you know, come, let's sit down, let's have a chat about what's going on in your life and let's talk about mental health. 
Um, neuropsychology is quite different from that. We focus a lot more on cognition. So the brain, um, how is the brain working? How are your thinking skills going? Like your learning, your memory, your attention, your reasoning, all that sorts of stuff. We mostly see people when things have changed with their thinking skills, whether that might be from a brain injury or a learning disorder or um you know, your mood's changed and so your thinking's changed. So we focus a lot more on people's thinking skills and what's going wrong there and what can we do about it to support you a bit more in day-to-day life. And you do a lot of assessment in terms of um, looking at like medico-legal kind of um, assessments for people, be it for dementia or for capacity or even in the court system. Can you tell us a bit about that? Absolutely. So um, neuropsychology is quite diverse. So it does go across the age span from children all the way up to older adults. I personally do do a lot of work um, with the offending population. So in the medical legal space, um, which is why it was so lovely to be listening to a lot of um, Sarah's trials that have been going on, because I feel like things do overlap a little bit. I do a lot of work with the courts, so so they are um, they make referrals for individuals that have been through jail. Um, they're in the criminal justice system, and they're often out on bail or out on remand. And we're just having a look at their thinking skills to get an idea of what's going on, because there's such a high prevalence of undiagnosed brain injuries and learning disorders and things that are very much affecting function in day-to-day life affecting people's behavior and the choices that they're making and so if we find out what's actually going on at that cognitive level and maybe make a diagnosis of something that's been missed for the last few years we can get them on the pathway to getting the supports that they need and maybe change that revolving door situation maybe they're not heading back to jail and they're not making those behaviors and choices anymore. Really interesting. Mm. And in terms of other assessments, you said you talked to um, work through children, but Mm. up to older adults. What kind of things do you see in an older population with cognition? How Mm. does it change? Absolutely. So I think the biggest one, and it's particularly relevant for Australia, given that we are an aging population, is dementia. Mm -hmm. So um, it's sure how well known it is in the community probably not very well known but neuropsychologists are actually the gold standard for assessment and that early diagnosis of dementia so if somebody maybe whether you're noticing it in your parent or a spouse or family member or a friend that there have been some changes to their thinking skills they may be a little bit more forgetful a little bit more just a little bit more disoriented maybe having some changes to their language abilities or their behavior and personality having a look at whether something like an underlying undiagnosed dementia might be going on is something that neuropsychologists focus on and could I ask what's the advantage of early because I mean there's a lot of stigma Mm. attached and there's an enormous amount of fear and sometimes people might almost rather not know and the later we know the better. So what's the advantages of early investigation and diagnosis? It's a great question. I guess the biggest one is so plans can be put in place if needed. Sometimes you can intervene if it's a really early stage. There are are medications that can be given that Mm -hmm. will not reverse or eradicate if there is an underlying dementia going on, but you can slow the progression at times. You can... um, give strategies to assist with those cognitive difficulties, strategies to assist the family with any behaviour changes. It makes the progression easier to manage. 
I think the other thing to think about in those situations, and it's an uncomfortable topic for a lot of people because it's a hard reality of ageing, is that um, we now have a different system that's just recently come into place. We used to have an overlying power of attorney, um, but now you have to specify a medical and financial power of attorney. And part of that is having an assessment of capacity for someone. So if they've got the capacity to make decisions for themselves at any given time, is that something that neuropsychology helps with? Absolutely. So that's um, that's a big one, particularly in regional areas where you you're less likely to find doctors who will do that. So mm-hmm. the onus lies a lot more with neuropsychologists. So capacity is having the cognitive ability to make those decisions. So if we're talking about dementia, for someone who's got quite advanced dementia, they unfortunately do lose that cognitive ability to make those complex decisions. And so they need to have appointed somebody else, like a trusted family member, to be able to make those decisions for them. So, for example, whether that means um, helping to decide where that person's going to live or maybe helping to make those financial decisions in the future or even medical decisions. So um, whether, you know, to engage in certain treatments or not, it really is important that we're doing what's in the best interests of that client or that patient, but also what's um, what taking into account their will and their preferences as well. And is neuropsychology a primary service where you can self-refer in and get a, an assessment if you're worried about these kinds of things, or is it something that you need to go and see your GP to get referred to? Good question. It probably does vary a little bit depending on the service, but more often than not, you can self-refer. It's just about having a place to go to to Mm. make that referral, Um, which is why I think going to the GP is a really good first point of contact because you should be able to trust your local GP to be able to know where the services are to link you into that would be most appropriate. So I do recommend always going to the GP and having a good relationship with your GP. Um, But yes, for example, with our private practice, you can make that self-referral. We can email through, you can make, have a phone call with us and we'll always have a chat to you about whether the service is most appropriate for you or not, or otherwise we'd recommend other places for you to go to. And, and, Capacity Plus, if I'm correct, is one of the only services out in the Western District. So what kind of area are you servicing at the moment? Absolutely. So it definitely gets trickier when we move out of metropolitan Melbourne exactly and get more into... exactly what I was going to ask, yeah. listening oh. to Dr. Doolittle and his experiences. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. <laughs> and that really resonated with yeah. me as well. So not only do we... And yes, Phoebe, thank you. We are probably the only private practice offering comprehensive neuropsychology services in Western Victoria. We do have our head office in Warrnambool, but we cover Geelong and Melbourne as well. Um, And it's just the the options for services are so much fewer when you're in regional Victoria. Um, You have to get a lot more creative. There's a lot of logistics trying to get people to get the treatment and services that they need. We've relied a lot more on video telehealth. So we have um, patients or clients coming into our warnable office and we set them up with, you know, allied health assistants and neuropsychologists in the warnable office to be seen by our neuropsychologists who are based in Melbourne or Geelong 
just to kind of deal with that wait list. I do love the fact that you're kind of based in, you are based regionally, you're not based in Melbourne. I mean, that's an unusual little twist. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. I was based in Melbourne before. I have worked at many hospitals and yeah. even some of the prison services in Melbourne. But ultimately, regional Victoria was the area that needed specialist mm. services in neuropsychology more. So it just felt like the right place to have the head office. Mm. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. It is 10.54 in our studio and we're talking with Alison Shockman about um, neuropsychology and the clinic Capacity Plus down in Warrnambool. We've talked about older adults and the kind of things that you provide for them. What do you do for kids? Good question. Um, so with children, obviously, that's when we look at neurodevelopmental disorders such as intellectual disability, autism is a big one, and also just specific learning disorders. So I think the most commonly um, colloquially known one would be dyslexia, so mm-hmm. specific learning disorder and reading. So we assess children who are referred to us to see if they do. Um, we test their thinking skills, we look at their behaviour and their general functioning and we see if they um, might be suffering from one of those underlying conditions and if so, we make this um, recommendations and we link them in with lots of support services like, for example, the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme and it's really important that they get the intervention that they need, mm. um, particularly early in their developmental stage to give them the biggest opportunity to kind of catch up to their peers. Yeah, and you can make recommendations to the school and things like that in terms of supporting a student. Absolutely. We often, um, especially with children, there are so many domains involved. So we do liaise with the school, we liaise with the family. Often there might be, you know, the Department of Family Fairness and Housing and out-of-home care kids. So there's some legal liaising going on as well. But the aim is definitely to link them up with services that can support them moving forward. Really interesting. And for those playing along at home, I've mentioned this on air before, but I also have a learning specific learning disability. So I went through neuropsychology as a child and I can tell you that having a really good and thorough report made a massive difference to my schooling in terms of getting interventions and, and structures in place so that you're not just coping but actually able to work and learn in an environment that's supportive of you um, so it's really important that, that schools and families get this kind of assessment done so that they know how to support their children. Absolutely. Absolutely. And look at the difference that it make, has made. Well, they never yeah. thought I'd finish high school, yeah. so, you know, and show them. Yeah, <laughs> and it's so rewarding being able to help people like that because that yeah. potential is absolutely there. It's just about tapping into it. And I think maybe... I don't know if I should have mentioned it earlier, the assessments, they are quite long, but yeah. they're really comprehensive. You know, they could be anywhere from three to four hours really getting Mm -hmm. a comprehensive look at those thinking skills, the behaviour, how the child is functioning in different environments. And then there's a really wonderfully long report because it's so detailed with the recommendations and strategies that can genuinely practically be put into place. Which is amazing support for families, Mm. I think. Very quickly, do you want to mention a little bit about what kind of um, treatment options there are once they've got a report in, in all kind of walks of life? Good question. So, um, as you can imagine, being in a regional area, we are inundated with referrals. So we only do assessments. We don't provide the treatment, but we certainly link you in with other services that can, whether that's often, um, particularly with adults and particularly um 
when you're noticing changes to your thinking, there's obviously a mood component there as well. It's quite debilitating. It's quite sad. It's anxiety provoking. So um, a big important part of that is to get some psychological support and counselling for yourself um, and also just understanding the impact it might have on families, so particularly older adults, um, wondering if it's normal ageing or dementia, just really looking at um, supporting your mental health during those changes as well. Um, otherwise, there are many services out there that can do cognitive intervention, which is um, putting strategies in place to support your thinking skills like your attention, put some planning and routine and structure in place to really support that day-to-day life a bit. Beautiful. And I had one question that mm. just popped into my brain. With COVID and burnout that we've seen, mm. have, with those that have got either long sort of expressions of burnout or even things like long COVID, is that something that you've had people come through and get assessed for? Absolutely. So, I mean, I don't think I need to mention how big of a game changer COVID was for everyone's lifestyle and, you know, a lot of livelihood and mental health. But um, cognitively, yes, we've had everyone from um, regular community members all the way up to doctors in who worked in hospitals throughout COVID reporting that they've had learned COVID and their attention and their ability to think clearly just isn't the same anymore. So really assessing, finding out what's going on there, what's the cause of that and trying to support and treat that as best as possible. Well, that's amazingly interesting. And thank you for coming in and talking to us about neuropsychology because My I pleasure. think lots of people don't know that it's a field that's mm. different to, to psycholo- interventional psychology and, and it's really great to hear about it. So thank you for coming in. If people want to um, get a bit more information, they head to your website, Capacity Plus. Yep, just capacityplus.com.au um, and you'll be able to have all our contact details there to phone us or email us and make referrals that way. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.